I was walking through a life one morning The sun was out, the air was warm But oh, 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 I was cold And though I must have looked a half a person To tell the tale in my own version It was oh, oh, only then that I felt whole Survive more 
everyone. Welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman. Today, it's Friday, October 8th, 2021. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in San Francisco, and we're on unceded Ramatouche Ohlone land. Please check out the website at weeklyrev.org. We have a land acknowledgement tab there with maps, information, and places to donate as well. You can also go to ramatouche.org, and that's R-A-M-A-Y-T-U-S-H.org, and learn more. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Feeling kind of overwhelmed and frustrated today. Um, so perhaps not different than other days, but definitely needed to play some more upbeat music. Although the songs are kind of depressing if you listen to the lyrics. But, you know, that's okay. Um, heard some Wolf Parade, one of my favorite bands, and Ted Leo and the Pharmacists, another one of my favorite bands, and Block Party, who were, I haven't listened to in a while, but they were definitely one of my favorite bands um, back in the, in the 2000s. So thought I'd play some more fast-paced music, and we'll get into some more slower music as we uh, move on in the show. Sometimes I start off with a rant. There's too much to get to. The fucking Blue Angels were, f- for some reason, up in the uh, in the air yesterday, which was fucking disgusting, and every single person I talked to and interacted with yesterday was just so fucking upset about it, and it's like, oh, do people not have enough PTSD? No, let's, like, waste some fucking money and uh, trigger people by, like, flying fucking fighter jets in the fucking air so you can't hear yourself think and um, just thinking about folks who have experienced that firsthand, um, American jets flying overhead and causing death and destruction. And then here it's like, oh yeah, we'll just do it because we can. Meanwhile, got people without houses, people without health care, uh, people who are starving. And uh, no, we're going to like fly some fucking jets in the air. Just so stupid. It gets dumb. I mean, it's it's always been dumb and it's always been frustrating. And I'm sure if we were to go back and listen to the show, I don't think they did it last year because uh, of the, who knows why they didn't do it last year. Um, uh, but uh, I feel like every every year on this show, I'm I'm sure there's a rant of mine about it, and I'm sure many other folks have also ranted about it. It's just awful for most people. <laughs> it's it's just awful. It's just so. Uh, it's just another thing that's that's dumb. And I don't want to be a total bummer on this show because there's a lot to be upset and depressed and angry about. I don't need to add to that. However, uh, it's important to call it out for what it is and. Uh, I, I try to find other ways to, to show up and to try to create the world that we want to live in. And I think in the world that most of us want to live in is a world where we don't have to deal with that nonsense. And it's just so stupid. Uh, something maybe less consequential, um, but also frustrating. Uh, just cars just in the bike lane. I have like a 10-minute, if that, bike ride over to the station. And uh, there's at least five cars in bike lanes today just sitting there. And like I understand, you know, like there are certain situations I can understand, but there was just sometimes people just sitting there not even realizing it. And I try to think about what would it be like if bike riders were to just, you know, be riding on the street, sharing a lane with cars, and we just decided to like, oh, we're gonna like leave our bikes in the middle of the street and like wander off for a few minutes. And for and if your car wasn't big enough to kind of go through that bike, what would that be like for you? Just you have to sit there or change lanes, and it was just so dumb and this has happened it happens constantly and it just feels so disrespectful and it's so again it's like this minor thing but it's also just so fucking dumb so much is dumb and again i'll be getting into more things that are just so frustrating and perhaps (sighs) needing to find other outlets to uh express my rage because uh things don't need to be this way they really fucking don't i've sworn a lot i mean i usually swear on this show but really feeling it today Really, really feeling it today. And I'd like to live in a world where 
you know, everyone took care of each other. People respected each other. I'm also just uh, been in some indoor spaces in my building where I live in and people just not wearing masks still. And it's just like, what, how I get that. It's not comfortable. I don't like doing it, but it's like the sooner this, this virus, uh, we can like <sighs> ensure that's not spreading anymore. The sooner we can go t to not wearing them anymore at all, but it's just really frustrating and it just feels really selfish. Anyway, those are a few things that I've just top of my head today. We'll be getting to some more stories and, uh, this first one I think is pretty important and there's a lot, and just because I don't get to something doesn't mean of course it's not important. This is just a drop in the bucket. This is uh, of the articles that I come across during the week. This is from The Nation written by Scott Hessinger, um, who's one of the people I follow on Twitter. Uh, a massive fail on crime reporting by the New York Times NPR. Sensational stories about a quote unquote spike in murders offer a model of how not to cover criminal justice. And I do believe one of the many reasons that we live in this very toxic I, I mean I'm running out of words to use because it's just everything's so fucking backwards but there's so much fear mongering and so much victim blaming and misinformation that's out there and uh, so much of it is tries to get people afraid of one another and uh, and also somehow to trust the state even though the state's the one who commits the most violence and part of it is just due to the media and how stories are reported so this article, I believe, should go into some of that. This came out on October 6th, 2021, and we have show notes on our website at weeklyrev.org, so after this episode, or even during, well, it won't be up right now if you're listening live. However, uh, you'll be able to go and read this article and share it as well. And at the moment, we don't have transcripts. However, the very least can provide the written articles for folks to read and share. On September 27th, 2021, the FBI released much-anticipated crime data on that most unusual year, 2020, the statistics revealed a continued steady decline in major crimes overall, apart from one unfortunate outlier, homicides. Despite homicides being at historic lows, especially when compared to the 1980s and 1990s, the murder rate last year rose by 30% compared to the previous year. This rise has left journalists and analysts seeking explanations. Yet the notoriously volatile nature of short-term crime data renders such efforts futile. Ascribing a short-term fluctuation to any particular cause, even a global pandemic, is impossible. While police and allies have attempted to use the data to tie quote-unquote bail reform and racial justice protests to this, year's, this past year's rise in murders, those claims are contradicted by the geography of the rise in homicides, which occurred across the country, in red and blue states, in jurisdictions that have seen some measured wins for criminal and civil justice, and those that haven't and jurisdictions that saw protests against police violence and those that haven't, and all despite massive police budgets. Let's take a step back. My admittedly dry account above of the newsworthiness of the new FBI data and subsequent efforts to twist it is how the story could and should have been reported by journalists. No sensationalism, no speculation, at least some context and nuance, and what we can actually determine based on the data. But if you were to read the coverage of the data's released by news sources like the New York Times and NPR, you would now likely believe that the only news from the FBI data was that there was an unprecedented spike in homicides, and that this unprecedented spike, against all evidence to the contrary and the FBI data itself, could very well have been caused by bail reform and protests for racial justice following the police killing of George Floyd. This kind of justice, and justice is in quotation marks, uh, reporting is not just false, it is dangerous, widespread, and long-standing. 
I write this not to attack the Times or NPR or the reporters of these stories, nor to take away or distract from the very real and disturbing tragedy of every single one of these murders, but to call attention to an insidious and historically rooted contributor to the system of policing and prison in our country, a pro-police worldview deeply ingrained in journalism. When I talk about journalism as one of the most pressing racial and social justice issues today, people, even close colleagues of mine, often look at me quizzically. But after serving for nearly a decade as a public defender, I know well that every cruel and irrational policy of the mass incarceration era, policies that I saw devastate predominantly black and brown people in Brooklyn criminal court every day, was propped up by harmful journalistic biases and practices just like the ones on display this week from some of the most prominent media outlets in our nation. At a time when the impact, cost, and failure of our system of mass criminalization is more visible and widely acknowledged than ever before, we have the opportunity, finally, to end our over-reliance on policies that have failed to produce public health or safety despite our spending more on these quote-unquote solutions than any other society in the history of the world. Today we know, both from experience and overwhelming research, that releasing people from jail prior to trial reduces crime for years in the future and saves tens of millions of dollars in each major city. We also know, again, based on experience and also the most robust criminogenic analysis in history, a meta-analysis of 116 studies just released this month that long sentences have zero effect on crime. Yet journalism today continues to ignore these criminological facts while instead following the familiar and dangerous patterns from the 1980s and 90s that helped drive mass criminalization itself. Overly simplistic stories with alarmist headlines and dehumanizing language that rely on predominantly on police as sources, neglect nuance, provoke fear in the public, speculate about short-term crime data, and posit police, prosecution, and prison as the solutions to crime. Such journalism distracts the public from other solutions like reducing poverty, investing in mental health and substance treatment, providing quality education and affordable housing, and leaning into violence prevention and restorative justice approaches that have been shown to prevent and reduce violence. Recent events provide abundant examples of journalism shaping criminal legal policy. In New York, after bail reform was passed in 2019, police and prosecutors immediately started cherry-picking and weaponizing, and the media started publishing sensational cases and short-term statistics that drove the untrue narrative that releasing people before trial fueled a rise in crime. That fear-mongering worked. Bail reform was rolled back in 2020, mere weeks after it was enacted. We are already seeing the same scare tactics in attempts to recall forward-thinking prosecutors in California and in Illinois, where recently passed an overwhelmingly bipartisan pretrial justice reform legislation is also now at risk. Bad journalism has consequences. Though problematic reporting by the Times and NPR has resulted in millions receiving harmful misinformation, it also offers a critical teaching moment for reporters and consumers of media. These news outlets' missteps are concrete and avoidable. By identifying them, we may be able to provide a roadmap by which to call in other media outlets and journalists to ensure that these same mistakes are not replicated. First, in both the Times and NPR coverage of the FBI data, the reporters focused on the sensational. Outlets prioritize clicks over nuance. Because many readers don't look beyond the big print, these kinds of trade-offs can be consequential. The Times headline read, Murders spiked in 2020 in cities across the United States. 
NPR made a similar editorial choice, publishing as part of the reporter's title for the day, A Surge in U.S. Murder Rates. These outlets were far from alone. The Washington Post, NBC News, The Hill, and The Guardian, among countless others, focused on the homicide spike not only in their headline, but also in the reporting, while bearing the relevant fact that there, were also, there, also, that there was also a decline in all other major crimes. This same kind of trade-off between sensationalism and context shows up more routinely in the explicit st story bias of outlets. We often read about outlier crimes, the individual who committed a crime while out on bail, yet never about the far more common reality of the tens of thousands who haven't been caged pretrial and thrive in their freedom because of bail reform. These choices shape the public's intuitions about the criminal legal system and consequently drive policy. Second, both the Times and NPR pieces are sourced exclusively from police or criminologists with pro-police bias and or consulting contracts. The Times article, for example, features the perspectives of two chiefs of police, a former police department supervisor and a consultant to police departments. The NPR podcast relies solely on the opinion of Richard Rosenfeld, a criminologist with a history of supporting the so-called and much criticized Ferguson effect theory, drawing connections between protests against police brutality and an increase in crime and murder. This routine source bias in criminal justice reporting must stop. It leads to the false conception that police are the only experts on crime and ignores, ignores the critical perspectives such as those of public defenders, social workers, and individuals and communities directly impacted by the criminal legal system. It also presents a singular skewed interpretation of the news, imbuing coverage with a pro-police bias, an assumption that police solve crime and make the public safer. Every time there is a rise in homicides, instead of journalists using the occasion to question the efficacy of policing, police are allowed to use their failures to demand more resources, more funding, more support. Finally, media outlets need to resist the understandable, but ultimately futile, urge to find potential causes for shorter-term changes in crime data. Indeed, both The Times and NPR acknowledge the limitations of such attempts. The Times story noted, there is no simple explanation for the steep rise, yet then provided a platform for a police chief and a police department consultant to explain it. And explain is in quotation marks. While, uh, meanwhile, the NPR reporter acknowledged it's difficult to attribute causality because often local factors drive crime, and even admitted all these causes could have factored in. Their exact connection is unknown but then asked a criminologist to speculate on possible drivers of the rise in homicides. Given the known links between media, fear, and policy, this common journalistic practice is irresponsible. Media outlets, editors, and reporters need to improve their practices by turning to sources beyond just police and prosecutors, critically analyzing police sources when used, conveying genuine nuance in their reporting and headlines, and stopping the use of dehumanizing language. But it is also on us, as consumers of media, to hold reporters accountable and be critical readers. We must question any conclusion based on short-term fluctuations in the crime rate, pay attention to which sources are being held up as credible, and recognize how deeply embedded pro-police bias is and has been in the current media establishment. 
We can hold news outlets to account by taking to social media, authoring letters to the editor, and sharing the glaring flaws in such news coverage with our colleagues and friends. The recent momentum and support for systemic change to the criminal legal system is widespread and unlike anything in recent history, but it is also fragile, as recent news reports and elections show. If we are to have any hope at ending this costly, ineffective, and inhumane era of mass criminalization, we cannot overlook or underestimate the role of the media in perpetuating it. Wow. Very thorough article. And again, you can find this at thenation.com, written by Scott Eschinger, and it came out on October 6th, and we'll provide a link on our website at weeklyrev.org. I'm going to take another music break, and we'll be back in a bit. Please do stay tuned.
Lucky came upon the shore, found you a conquering America. You spoke of peace, waged a war while you were conquering America. 
America by Tracy Chapman, and that would be, uh, I think, uh, a great new national <laughs> anthem for uh, far more astute in terms of what the United States is about. I have a few more articles for you. Um, right now, workers at Kellogg's cereal production plants are on strike across the country, so I thought I'd share a little bit of info about that. This article, uh, I was trying to find uh, as much info as possible, but this is just a, a smaller article, shorter article. Uh, it's from October 5th from bctgm.org. Bakery confectionery, confectionery, confection, excuse me, going to start that over again. Bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers, and grain millers international union, BCTGM, President Anthony Shelton issued the following statement in support of 1,400 BCTGM members in Battle Creek, Michigan, local 3G. 
Omaha, Nebraska, local 50G, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, local 374G, and Memphis, Tennessee, local 252G, who are on strike against the Kellogg Company. The BTC GM International Union stands in unwavering solidarity with our courageous brothers and sisters. I'll also add non-binary folks uh, who are on strike against the Kellogg Company. For more than a year throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, Kellogg workers around the country have been working long, hard hours, day in and day out, to produce Kellogg ready-to-eat cereals for American families. Kellogg's response to these loyal, hardworking employees has been to demand these workers give up quality health care, retirement benefits, and holiday and vacation pay. The company continues to threaten to send additional jobs to Mexico if workers do not accept outrageous proposals that take away protections that workers have had for decades. Kellogg is making these demands as they rake in record profits without regard for the well-being of the hardworking people who make the product products that have created the company's massive profits. We are proud of our Kellogg members for taking the strong stand against this company's greed, and we will support them for as long as it takes to force Kellogg to negotiate a fair contract that rewards them for their hard work and dedication and protects the future of all Kellogg workers. BCTGM members in Battle Creek, Omaha, Lancaster, and Memphis produce Kellogg's ready-to-eat cereals, including Rice Krispies, Raisin Bran, Fruit Loops, Corn Flakes, and Frosted Flakes. And this is, I'll share... Uh, this article on our site at weeklyrev.org. You can also sign up for more info. And also, some folks along Twitter have been posting Kellogg's owns like a lot of different products. It's not just like the breakfast cereals. There's there's a lot. So when we talk about boycotting, and also a reminder that there are so many alternate options out there. There are generic brands as well. So if you like cereal, and I like cereal, there are options out there that folks you can support the boycott and also still ensure that you get cereal. So it's a win-win. So we'll be sharing that article on our site, weeklyrev.org. Next up, I do try to provide uh, action items, uh, information. There is a lot of misinformation out there, as we shared in our first article that we read today, and wanted to share some other hopefully optimistic (laughs) items out there. So this is from Motherboard uh, from Vice. Activists are designing mesh networks to deploy during civil unrest. The Mycelium Mesh Project is testing DIY networks that can be quickly deployed on trees or lampposts during a political uprising. And this was written by Ella Fraser, and it came out on October 5th of this year. Imagine waking up and checking your phone after several evenings of mass demonstrations. You try scrolling through your Twitter feed, but it won't load. You turn off your route, you turn your router off and on to no avail. You try texting a friend to complain, but the message fails to send. Frustrated, you walk outside. People scattered along the sidewalk look as disoriented and confused as you feel, except for police officers in the National Guard, who are forcefully telling everyone to immediately return to their homes over a loudspeaker. Currently, most of us would have had no choice but to retreat into isolation in such a situation. But organizers and programmers with the Mycelium Mesh Project are hoping to provide a solution by designing a decentralized off-grid mesh network for text communications that could be deployed quickly during government-induced blackouts or natural disasters. The network that we all that we use will work pretty much fine in 99.9% of the cases, but when it doesn't, it's a real big problem, Marlon Kotz, an organizer and developer with the project told Motherboard, 
The authorities' control over our communications infrastructure can just completely determine what is politically possible in a situation where the future is really up for grabs, where people are making a move to change things in a serious and radical way. Mesh networks, a form of intranet distributed across various nodes rather than a central internet provider, have the potential to decrease our collective reliance on telecommunication conglomerates like Spectrum and Verizon. Nonprofits like NYC Mesh are increasingly offering relatively affordable internet alternatives by installing mesh nodes at people's homes, hmm, which then connect to supernodes and the internet at large. One such network was set up at an encampment outside City Hall in New York City with the height of last summer's protests against police violence. During a civil unrest situation, government operatives could theoretically disconnect established con commercial mesh networks by raiding activists' homes and destroying their nodes or supernodes. The Mycelium Mesh Project is addressing this potential weak link by developing a system that could be deployed at a moment's notice in non-locations, such as on abandoned buildings, treetops, electric boxes, and utility poles. Nodes would be cheap, run independently off of the power grid, and could be produced with materials that could be obtained locally. So far, the collective has successfully sent and received text messages across 13 miles during field testing around Atlanta, Georgia, with nodes powered by rechargeable batteries harvested from disposable vapes. Oh, interesting. The scenario they are prepping is for is less far-fetched than it may initially seem. In 2011, the Bay Area Rapid Transit System, BART, police shut down wireless service for three hours to disrupt protests against the agency's murder of Oscar Grant and Charles Hill. In 2016, water protectors at Standing Rock claimed that their cell phone signals frequently disappeared and had difficulties with live streams and uploading videos and other posts to social media. In February of this year, Myanmar's military dictatorship shut down telecommunications and Wi-Fi across most of the country during its coup d'etat. Connections can also become unreliable due to less nefarious reasons, such as when networks become congested during mass events like protests and music festivals. This internet shutdown doesn't happen in a situation where everything is going well, a Burmese human rights activist in Myanmar told Wired UK. They are cracking down on the protests, killing civilians. You live in fear that something can happen to you at night, and you think, if there is no internet, you cannot talk to your friends or colleagues about what is happening. Since 2019, 45 countries have shut down the internet 239 times, according to the internet research firm Top 10 VPN. During the Black Liberation Uprisings in the U.S. last summer, the government chose not to shut down communication networks. Instead, it seemed to strategically gather intel with stingrays and dirt boxes, which collect data from cell phones en masse. But Kotz says a shutdown could happen next time. The Communications Act of 1934 allows the president to shut down or take control of any facility or station for wire communication in the U.S. And while civil liberties groups in uh, like the ACLU and EFF have argued shutoffs violate the First Amendment, there is no legal precedent stating they are strictly off-limits. It is the backstop. It is the joker. It is the ace card, and there are more than enough examples to demonstrate that the state will do this kind of thing if they need it to maintain control, Kotz said. The Mycelium Mesh Project is still in its uh, relatively early stages of development, Messages aren't encrypted, a necessary feature for activists, and the model isn't ready for long-range use. But developers are hopeful that their open-source model will promote cooperation amongst like-minded coders. This is anti-capitalist work, which is non-commercial. We are not trying to start a business, Kotz explained. 
we're explicitly trying to take advantage of open source type concepts. So not only do we want the code that we're developing to be open source, but our entire production model will be. Very cool, I learned quite a bit there. Uh, again, this article is from Vice and it came out on October 5th and it was written by Ella Fraser, uh, actually let me, um, excuse me, Ella uh, Fassier. Fassler? Let me, uh, <laughs> Uh, Ella Fassler, my mistake. That's A-F-A-S-S-L-E-R is Ella's last name. And we'll provide a link to that on our webpage at weeklyrev.org. All right, time for another music break. I'm going to rest my voice for a bit, and we'll be back uh, with some more. And also just wanted to share the last three songs we played was Not by Big Thief, Halls of Sarah by Nico Case, and America by Tracy Chapman. And uh, here's some more music, and we'll be back uh, in a bit.
Twenty times around the block, twice in every speed I've got. Twenty times around the block, twice in every speed I've got. Twenty times around the block, twice in every speed I've got. Twenty times around the block, twice in every speed I've got. Twenty times around the block, twice in every speed I've got. Twenty times around the block, twice in every speed I've got. Twenty times around the block, twice in every speed I've got. Twenty times around the block, twice in every speed I've got. Twenty times around the block, twice in every speed I've got. Twenty times around the block, twice in every speed I've got. Twenty times around the block, twice in every speed I've got.
It's been seven hours and 15 days Since you took your love away I go out every night and sleep all day Since you took your love away Since you've been gone I can do whatever I want I can see whomever I Said Aretha, girl, you better have fun. Ooh, nothing can pass, nothing can pass to you. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Ooh, ooh, ooh.
welcome back. That was Aretha Franklin singing Nothing Compares to You. Before that, we heard Indigo D'Souza with Hold You. And before that, Halloween Alaska with Des Moines. All right. So coming up next, I just received an email that I wanted to share uh, with uh, for the rest of the show. We've got about an hour left, so I did want to share the audio for a press conference. And this is Behind S. Excuse me, behind HSOC, the true story of San Francisco's abusive encampment response press conference. And this was uh, published on YouTube by the Coalition on Homelessness. So we also have, we'll have a link up to the YouTube video on our site at weeklyrev.org under our show notes. So I thought I would just go ahead and start playing this. Uh, it's a little over an hour, so we'll get to as much as we can before we hit the two o'clock mark. So uh, do stay tuned and thanks so much for listening in. Good morning, everyone. Okay. Just give everybody a minute. Okay. Uh, good morning, everyone. I'm Laura Valdez, and I'm the executive director with Dolores Street Community Services. I want to welcome everyone to this press conference on the release of the HSOC report by the Coalition on Homelessness. And uh, before we get started, I'd just like to take a minute um, to walk us through a couple of housekeeping items. The audience members will not be able to unmute themselves but you can use the question and answer function to ask your questions during this, this press conference. We'll also be having time at the end of our presentation for questions and answers. And as a reminder, you will not be able to, participants will not be able to unmute themselves during this presentation. A little bit about um, why we're here this morning. We're here to, to release a report from the Coalition on Homelessness on the city's response to street encampments. As many of you may have heard, the city's street encampments response and probably um, have read the article that came out in the Chronicle yesterday presenting somewhat conflicting reports. This report that is being released here today is available on the website with the Coalition on Homelessness, and we'll put in that, that link in the chat so that everybody can, can access that report. And the report is the result of analysis of the city's own data, observations by those bearing witness to these operations, and testimony from those directly impacted by these operations. And the report presents empirical truths about what the operations, about what the operations entail. You will notice that the report examines the structural problems of the HSOC operations and that the focus is on the system as a whole. The report is not intended to be a referendum on the individual actions of city, city workers or outreach workers. We deeply appreciate the hard work that, the, that these city employees do every day and we have great empathy for what they are trying to do in their work within the very difficult constructs of HSOC. I'd like to take a minute to introduce our speakers. 
Thank you uh, for joining us this morning. We have Carlos, Kelly, uh, Toro, and Felony. Uh, Carlos Watkins is a human rights organizer with the Coalition on Homelessness, who has led the data analysis and report creation, and who has stood witness to the many HSOC operations. Kelly Cutler is a human rights organizer with the Coalition on Homelessness, who has decades of experience conducting outreach and connecting people to the services and has witnessed many HSOC operations along with many other forms of encampment responses by the city of San Francisco, both which have been successful and, un successful and unsuccessful. Toro Castaña a formerly is a formerly unhoused individual who has been personally impacted by the HSOC operations. And Felony Castro is a harm reduction outreach worker with Glide, who works to address the needs of those forced to live on the streets. Thank you. Thank you to our speakers for joining us this morning. Carlos, I'll turn it over to you now so that you can present the findings of the HSOC report. Yes, thank you so much, Laura, for that introduction. Um, Tyler, if you could, could we pull up the presentation? Beautiful. Um, so like Laura says, We've put together this report based on our personal experience, our outreach and work at these HR operations, as well as, as well as some handy public records requests that I'll get into in a bit. Um, and so that report is available on our website and we just put in the chat as of nine o'clock this morning. Um, this presentation is meant to be a short summation of the main points of the, of the report, um, encouraging you all to go and read the report afterwards to get a fuller depth of analysis and understanding of what's really going on here. Um, so, Tyler, if we can move to the next slide. So we're going to be talking about HSOC, San Francisco's Healthy Street Operating Center. Um, now, I know those of us who are in this work really closely or maybe work for the city or around HSOC know pretty intimately what this organization is, but I think it's helpful for, for the general public to do a bit of, um, bit of background on what the Healthy Street's Operating Center is. Um, and so this is a quote from the Controller's Report put out in 2019 on HSOC. Um, and it says that the Healthy Streets Operating Center was formed in January 16, 2018, um, as the city's coordinated response to both homeless encampments and to behaviors that impact quality of life. Um, now, one thing that I think is really essential here, and an analysis that will carry throughout this presentation and throughout the report, is that fundamentally, HSHOC is meant to address encampments and behaviors, not to address people or the people's status of being forced to live without housing. Um, and I think that's really important and really informs a lot of the rest of this presentation. Um, now, I mentioned that this is a, a coordination. Um, HSOC is not a city department. It is also not fully housed in any city department, uh, meaning that there's no, it's tough to kind of figure out what all the players are and who's involved for a lot of folks. Um, so down here is, is a breakdown um, from a presentation by HSOC given at Monday's local homeless coordinating board meeting, um, breaking down the staffing of, of HSOC. As you can see, um, it contains SFPD, SFPD DPW, SF Hot, DPH, and MTA workers. Um, and as you can see, which I think is, is quite important, far and away that the largest amount of staffing by this staffing chart that was again presented in August of this year um, is SFPD. This is, this is largely a police-led operation. Um, so if we can go to the next slide, we can talk a little bit more about how HSOC works. Um, now, from the controller's report, from listening to HSOC people talk about what they do, their primary goal is the elimination of large encampments, right? Encampments over six tenths 
they want to get rid of them. Again, the tents, not the people. Um, and so the main way they do that at this point, and this has changed throughout the throughout the existence of HDOC, is through this system of resolutions, reencampment prevention, and cleaning operations. Um, a simple way to understand that is that first there is the, the large resolution, which we'll talk a lot about today. This is the full HDOC operation with all of the team members present, where limited services are offered, um, and there's cleaning undergone, and people are, are asked to move the, leave the area. Um, and then once that has occurred, the follow-up is that these, these signs are put up, no lodging zone, other such signage. The area is considered resolved. And from there, the goal of HOC is to prevent re-encampment and, and otherwise prevent people from staying on that street again. Um, that's done through re-encampment prevention, um, which employs strategies such as um, policing, threats of citation, um, often removal of services such as bathrooms. Um, there was some, some controversy in the media about that this summer, about removing bathrooms from areas that were resolved. Um, and, and a quote from that same presentation I mentioned in August, um, Director Carroll of DEM, who was the, um, the head of HSOC ostensibly, um, said that after an operation, district police stations are notified and asked to patrol the area. So what we see is that resolutions are really the starting point. And everything after that is basically enforcement and criminalization. Um, and we can move to the next slide after that. So what's wrong with that, right? What's wrong with HSOC? Why are we doing this report at all? Um, well, first starts from that first point I made, right? The, the primary focus of San Francisco street response should not be about property, should not be about tents or the visibility of homelessness. It should be about people, right? And helping people meet resources that can make them meaningfully exit from homelessness. Um, the problem when you prioritize a coordinated response based on tents, based on the visibility of homelessness, is that it can lead to a lot of really harmful outcomes. Um, the harmful outcomes of which I could list for days, um, but the primary ones we're going to be focusing on today and in this report are that because of this focus on tents and because of the strategies that lead to clearing tents well, which is what HSOC does, um, we find that they often have an inadequate number of beds um, at their operations, that they're failing to make appropriate and lasting placements that meaningfully exit people from homelessness, and that in the process they are constantly discarding people's property and throwing it, throwing it away, um, and making people have to restart over and over and over again from having nothing. Um, if we go to the next slide. And so just to um, give a little more to that, this is from the same um, 2019 report by the controller's office on HSOC. And as you can see, some of their metrics, like their primary metrics of success for HSOC are reducing the amount of calls to service through 311 and reducing the amount of tents and structures, which again, are really dehumanizing and unhelpful ways to quantify how successful we're being at addressing homelessness. Um, in other parts of that same report, there you can see the goals of their initial working groups, the foundations of HSOC, were all about removing tents. Primarily, the, the Mission District's working group, um, their primary goal was to eliminate all tents in the Mission, with no mention of where the people who live in those tents ended up. Um, and to speak a little more about what that looks like and uh, what, what that feels like, um, we have Tora Castaño, who was one of those people in those tents. Um, who the city was trying to clear. Um, and he's going to talk a little bit now about what it what it felt like to be engaged with HSOC and how HSOC treated him and his friends um, during that time. Go ahead, Toro. Um, okay. 
Um, I'm gonna ask Tori to unmute himself. Maybe he's having a bit of issue. Tori, you're muted if you if you weren't aware. Okay. How how am I now? There you go. Okay. <laughs> I apologize for that. Um, I was part of a group of about seven people, very tight knit. Um, we camped on 16th Street, just below Market, in front of the AIDS mural, across from the Harvey Milk Branch um, Memorial Library. Um, I, we, we chose that spot because no matter where you camp in the Castro, you, you were asked to move on a daily basis. But that sidewalk is so large, it allowed us to allow, um, you know, ADA room for people in case wheelchairs came by 51 inches or more. Um, and it was somewhat discreet and there was not near any businesses or any homes directly. So we thought it was a good spot um, to hunker down and resist and kind of take care of each other. Um, it was labeled a hotspot by the mayor. We're not exactly sure why, because we spent hours every day cleaning and maintaining the site and um, collecting resources for people to give out. We did needle exchange. I uh, gathered meals every day. People who I didn't even know knew they could come by and get a meal any time of the day. Um, we just kind of were left on our own outside. Um, the mayor's office is around the corner and her gym is about a block away from us. So we're kind of in between the two. So I suspect that's part of the reason we were labeled a hotspot. Also, we had a neighbor across the street who police told us called more than 400 times in, in a, a six month period. He was also um, putting uh, rotten seafood and rotten meat on some of the sink fixtures that they had out for us to wash our hands and ostensibly to make us sick. Um, and we encountered HSOC on a daily basis. They would come as early as 4.30 in the morning, as late as 9 a.m. It seemed very erratic. Um, it seemed like they had no regard for our health or well-being, you know, waking us up so early continuously, especially during the pandemic, it was a little shocking. Um, and they never offered us appropriate services or any services of any kind, really. That seemed their goal was to clear camps or clear gather as many tents as they could and and disperse people because they just didn't want us in the area. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tora, for um for that testimony. Um so yeah, and that really just doubles down on what a lot of what this is saying, right? Which is that their goal in engaging with Toro and his community on a daily basis for that long was to erase them, to to clear their encampment, never to help the people there or help them connect with meaningful services that would help them exit from homelessness. Um, Tyler, if we could go to the next slide, we can continue. Thank you. Um, so as I, I said at the top, um, our primary source in, in creating this report and speaking on this issue is our firsthand experience of being at HR operations, as well as the massive amounts of outreach um, and input we're getting from our unhoused people who are facing HSOC every morning or facing the city every morning um, and who have that experience and that knowledge. Just want to flag that this report is building on top of that um, with the help of some really, um, really significant public records re releases um, that we got a hold of. And I'm gonna give a huge shout out and thank you to the um, anonymous Twitter user at Diz underscore H, who has been doing a lot of um, public records requesting of the various departments involved in HSOC. Um, and has really helped us out to get good information about um, what HSOC is doing. Now to turn this into a, a manageable and really clear focus. What we've done is we've taken um, various sources that I'll get into in a, in a minute, and we've narrowed them down to a time period between January 5th 
in February 26th in 2021, um, a 37-day period, where we've been able to deeply analyze all of HSOC's operations, the, the amount of shelter beds they had for those operations, the, the bag and tags that were done for those operations, the amount of people that were engaged, how many of those people were placed in the shelter, but to get a really good picture of that snapshot, that 37 days, and really understand by the numbers what HSOC is doing, and to match that with our experience to get a full picture of what's happening here. Um, so if we go to the next slide, I can get a little bit into the, what the data sources are. So the first one, and probably most important, are these HSOC encampment summaries, which are, again, HSOC's internal data. Um, it's a bit small on this screen, but what it is, is it's, it's a summary of every operation they did during this time period. Um, and it says the number of tents that were starting, that they were there when they started, the number of tents that were removed, the number of the tents that remained, the same information for the number of vehicles there, um, and then the number of clients, quote unquote, who were there, the number of clients who were served, the number of clients who already had shelter, the number of clients who declined shelter, and the number of clients who were still there when they left. The important thing to mention here, well, one, that client word is a bit problematic and that everyone that they engage would be a client or how do they decide who's a client. But the only operations, the only options for how a client can be categorized is as being served, had already been housed or sheltered, or declining services, which would mean that's making the assumption that every client at an ASAR operation was offered services that were adequate to them and that they had the ability to decline them or accept them, um, which we'll get into a bit later. Um, we can move to the next slide though for now. Our second primary source of data is the DPW bag and tag logs. Um, for those who aren't aware, a bag and tag is a city's property confiscation policy. When they seize property, um, DPW is supposed to, or the police often, are supposed to quote unquote bag it, right? Put it into a big black bag and take it to their lot um, and put a tag on it of where it came from, who's it belonged to. And if a person has their belongings stolen or taken by DPW, they can go down to the lot and retrieve it. Um, what this what this log is, is a log of every single bag and tag that was recorded at the DPW site during the 37-day time period that we analyzed. Um, and we'll get a little bit more into what we learned from that process later, but for now, we can go to the next slide. Okay, and the third slide, and a really important one, is the daily shelter bed allocation summary. Um, so I'm going to have to break this down a little bit for those who aren't aware, but basically, this throughout the pandemic has been the way that the city divides the shelter beds. Um, and this email is like a summation of the, the, the dividing, right? Um, so basically what happens is that every morning, or this is back when the COVID command center was in charge of um, in charge of shelter allocation, but back then every morning the COVID command center would meet down with the different teams, the different departments that handle shelter allocation. Um, and this email would show us the result of that, which is that every site would have a number of how many shelter beds from that site are going to which team. The teams being HSOC, SF Hot Team, um, Department of Public Health, the hospital, right? Those types of teams. And what we can see from these emails is one, when were the shelter beds being um, sent out? And two, how many shelter beds did each team have each day? Um, which is really important because by comparing this sources and the DPW sources with the encampment summaries, we can get a really clear picture of what all the numbers mean together. So we don't just see how many clients were there and how many clients were placed in shelters. We can also know how many beds HSOC even had to begin with. We can see how many of those tents that were removed ended up in the bag and tag yard, right? And between the three of these sources, we do a really deep analysis of what was going on. Um, and for anyone who's interested in these sources or in a bunch more that we, we trimmed out for, for clarity's sake, um, in, the, in the report that we released this morning, 
at the, the last section is the appendix. We have linked a Google Drive there um, that's public where you can see all of these records as well as a lot more. Um, it's a bunch of public records that were released by, um, again, Twitter user Diz underscore H. Thank you so much for your help. Um, a lot of their records are in that Google Drive and you can look for yourself, find their information, verify what we found um, and have fun. Um, and with that, I'll move to the next slide. Thank you. So um, let's talk about, now that we have the data, what the data tells us about HDOC's operations, right? Um, and the first is that they have pretty abysmal placement rates. Um, and this is something that is kind of widely accepted. This slide, this um, chart here is not ours. It's from that same August presentation to LHCB of HDOC's operations. And what you can see, if you look closely, is that during 2020, there were fairly high um, placement rates, if you will, of how many placements were being done by HSOC. And what we can attribute that to, um, which Toro mentioned during his testimony, is that they had a, a large supply of adequate shelter options. That's the time, if you all recall, that we had the SIP hotels and a lot of them, and a lot of people were accepting the hotels because they met their needs. Um, what you'll see, if you look further down the chart, is that during the 2021 period, they've consistently had about a 30% service placement rate. Now that's, that means that 30% of the clients that they are engaging on a daily basis are ending up placed in shelter because of the operation. Um, I don't know about y'all, but for us, 30% is a pretty low rate. Um, and we'd hope that the, the primary street homelessness response team or coordinated team um, would have a much higher success rate than that. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about why we think that this success that these success rates are so low. Um, and we're gonna pass it to Kelly Cutler, who has been at these operations and can talk a little bit more about why we think that is. And uh, Tyler, you can go to the next slide for her. And Kelly, go ahead. Okay, we're set up here. Um, okay, so uh, the structure is to blame. And I'm going to break that down um, a little bit of what uh, uh, the timeline of the resolutions and and really what a lot of the big issues are here. Um, so they um, they start the shock operations at uh, about seven. They start uh, assembling to the site, and then at seven thirty, uh, shock and uh, DPH go around and take names uh, of the people that are at the site and ask people uh, if they want services. At that point, they don't know what the actual services are, so they're just able to get, um, uh, you know, the, the names and information from people. Um, and then at that point, uh, DPW begins to clean, uh, and oftentimes while the uh, outreach workers are still talking with people there, um, and uh, and which is, you know, very stressful, intense situation. Um, and it's it's not until 9:30 that around 9:30 that HOT is not, notified of what placements that they have available for them today, and um, and even if you know they're appropriate. But by this point, uh, the the uh, the clearing is basically done because uh, there's been a couple hours and it's uh, this constant pressure to be moving, um, and you know oftentimes people are told to go to the and uh, the block and wait there, but but even then you don't know what the actual resources are um, or if they're um, adequate. Um, and you know they're also uh, told because um, that they need to hurry because DPW workers are off at 11, and so the time frame is really um, uh, an important piece here. 
Um, and uh, I've got a video here that is uh, of, of one of the resolutions. And this is video that I took where um, uh, the uh, hot and had already been over and spoken to her and they were waiting to find out what the placement was. And um, in this case, uh, hot had even tried a, uh, the day before, but it wasn't available. So everyone was really trying to get um, her in. So why don't we show uh, the video there? Oh, I don't hear any audio. Tyler, I think you have to share your audio for us to hear. I need you to get up, break your tent down. I'll go get the police and they'll help you. Yeah, this is that that shows where it's like there's this gap between um, uh, the service providers actually being able to connect folks. They were wanting resources and they were uh, like stay here because um, uh, and to wait until that time. Um, and yet during that time they were being pressured. Um, can we go to the next slide? Uh, so. Uh, another example of where the structure is to blame um, and where shelter isn't allocated until about 9 or 9.30, which is seen by the daily allocation emails pictured in this slide, uh, which are consistently sent out um, after 9.30. Um, next slide. So, okay. So, this, once again, the structure is to blame. Um, so, this structure is, is causing chaos. It's trauma, um, and it really makes it harder for people to connect with outreach workers um, because there's just, like, even even the initial connection where they, they were so, it was time after time, and I kept bringing it up, where the initial interaction as hot as trying to talk to people, the power washing is starting. So they're having to yell, and it's just, it just makes it even more tense, and when they're trying to, you know, um, uh, really be able to uh, identify people's needs and connect them in. Uh, so it makes everyone's job extremely diff difficult. Um, and so for the, uh, let me see here. So actually we have a video right here that shows an example of 
in the middle of um, one of the resolutions and just see the, the extra stress that was going on with the Marquise. So I to show that. They didn't offer me any services. So that's the law. Check the cameras. Because I was busting my ass moving shit. Okay, so that was uh, that was one example, um, and and these there have been different iterations of the encampment resolution model. Um, we uh, and you know we're intentionally doing it where it's trauma informed, um, and uh, and that used to take. The model was um, took around four weeks or so. It, it took a while to build up, um, uh, you know, that connection. But even more so to find the appropriate resources and and to be able to work with folks and make that connection. Um, and yet these operations are. It went from a few weeks to you know, a couple hours, and that's just not realistic. Um, and so this this uh, this structure and model is leading to poor placement outcomes. Um, you know, the goal for everyone is to, you know, uh, get folks uh, connected into, you know, appropriate housing. Um, and I think that is it for me. Okay. Yeah, if it. I could That's just Carlos. say one more thing about that video, Kelly. Yeah. Um, and, and this, the, the person speaking here is Marquise, um, who's done a lot of work with the coalition, is, is quite the leader of Runwell Street. Um, and this was actually, this video was taken during a reencampment prevention operation. Um, so what he's talking about is that the day before was a resolution and he had not been offered any services because like Kelly was telling us, during the service offering time, people were already being moved. So he was busy moving himself and others because he's quite the leader there, like I said, he was helping other people move their belongings. And because he was so busy being forced to move by HSOC, he wasn't able to talk to outreach workers about a shelter placement. And so then the next day, they move on to re-encampment prevention where there was no hot team, there was no outreach offered, it was just them telling him to move again. And he was saying, how can you move me again? I was never offered services in the first place and I just moved yesterday. Um, so yeah, that's just a little more context for what that video is and mm -hmm. why it so speaks to the structure that Kelly broke down for us. Um, and Tyler, we can move to the next slide. Okay, so that's one problem, right? Um, is that there's not enough, oh, and Tyler cut off a little bit, I don't know. If, um, anyway, one problem is the structure, right? That Kelly just broke down that they're, they're rushing people, people are, it's a tra traumatic and chaotic experience. It's really hard for people to have meaningful conversations with outreach workers and connect with the resources they might have. The other issue and what we found from analyzing the public records data is that they just don't have enough resources in the first place. Um, and before I get too into this, what we're gonna analyze here in the public records is the number of shelter beds that the city had during these operations. What's important to remember is the larger framing here, right? Which is that shelter, is, is a great reprieve from the streets, um, is a great option. But when we talk about meaningful exits and like what a solution to homelessness is, we've all agreed by this point that it's housing. Um, so I wanna make it clear that at no point during HR operations is, is housing being offered, is housing an option for folks. Um, and for the most part, the beds that are being offered are congregate shelter beds with a few exceptions. Um, and we know from a lot of research and talking to people by now, the congregate shelters meet some people's needs, but don't meet everyone's needs, whether it could be because of disability access or because of past traumas or abuses or because of people's gender, sexual, or um, racial identities. There's a lot of reasons why congregate shelter might, be, might not be adequate for certain people's needs. 
Um, so while we're talking today and in this report specifically about number of beds total, I want to be clear that any meaningful effort at placing people into resources, we're going to have to account for the individuality of what people's needs are and what resources are actually an option for them. With that being said, even if we just take it as a total shelter bed number, they don't have enough shelter beds. Um, and so what we've done here for this chart is we've looked at those shelter allocation summaries that we talked about and counted how many beds HSOC had every single day during this 37-day period. And then we compared it to the number of clients they engaged at all of their operations during the same periods. And if you compare the days by days, right, January 5th, how many clients they engaged and how many shelter beds they had available, we find that they consistently don't have enough beds. Out of the 37 days, only on two days did they have more beds than clients engaged. Um, and on, as an average, they only had about 52% of the beds they would need to have enough beds for everyone. Um, and that's obviously problematic. If, if we recall back to their internal data, the only way they categorize people as having accepted services, declined services, or already had services, it, it really makes it hard to see how that's possible that everyone could have made one of those choices if they didn't even have shelter beds available for everyone at the engagement. Um, and can we move to the next slide, Tyler? So what we've done is we've done a bit of a reframing. Let's look not at how many of the total clients ended up in shelter. Let's look at how many of the available beds that HSOC had were filled on those days. And that's what this chart does. Um, and what we can see by that is the same as we saw from HSOC's um, presented chart, which is that the overall placement rate just of total clients is about 30%. But if we look at how many of the beds they had were filled, it's a much higher rate of about 76%. So when we talk about these acceptance placement rates, 30% doesn't mean that only 30% of people said yes to services. 30% means that only 30% of people got services. When you look at how many services were actually available, there's a pretty high success rate of getting them filled, even though those caveats, right, that they're only concrete shelter, there's no housing, people's trauma, those issues, which is a really interesting reframing um, of like what the issue is, right? If the issue isn't people and whether or not they want services, the issue is, how many services do we have? And how many services are we bringing to these giant operations? And if you look at the total line on the bottom of this chart, you'll see that during this time period, they cleared almost 600 tents. They engaged with about 700 clients total. But during that whole time, they only had about 277 shelter beds the entire time. And 210 of those were filled. So what, what's really the problem here? Um, and we can move to the next slide. All right, so that's one big issue, right? Is property placement, uh, um, shelter placement, whether people are getting into um, services during these operations. One of our other big issues is property confiscation. Um, now, there's been a long history that I'm sure many of you know of the fight over property confiscation. We've had the Stolen Belongings Project, there's been lawsuits, there's the history of the bag and tag on policy. Um, I think one way to be helpful to talk about this is to have some of the people who are um, experiencing it themselves or are seeing it. So now I'm gonna pass it back to Toro Castaño um, and have him speak about what, how property confiscation looks, what it's like to have your belongings taken by HSOC and, and how that all works. Um, Toro, if you wanna come back off mute. And Thank you. Um, I, a little tangent here, I just wanna say that I'm not service resistant and no one in my group is service resistant. Um, I've been in housing and uh, since March, thanks to hotels, not hospitals. Um, I jumped at the chance once offered, you know, some.
looks like the uh, video is meet my needs. Anyways, uh, back to the topic. Um, we had a particularly unique situation, I think, because we were a hotspot because the mayor wanted us gone. The residents wanted us gone because we were so visible. Having a few technical difficulties here. Right now we are listening to the audio for Behind HSOC, the true story of San Francisco's abusive encampment response press conference. And it was uploaded to YouTube uh, today. We'll also provide a link to this on our website at weeklyrev.org. And we'll be ending up the show here in a little bit. Um, but um, I here we go. Because I was kind of the by proxy uh, community leader of our group, although we did everything by consensus. Um, uh, I was probably most vocal, and because of that, I don't think any of my bag and tags ever made it to the yard. I think I tried four different times to go and get property after it was confiscated, and it never made it. Simply was not even done. Um, in particular, uh, August twenty first, um, the DPW. lead um, fought with me over a locked cabinet that I kept our most valuable things in, like, for example, my MacBook Pro with about six and a half years of original research on gentrification. Um, after I was arrested uh, legal lodging they grabbed the cabinet and he made a cell phone video personal cell phone video going through my things and made a, a point of saying oh here's a, a macbook or a laptop computer we'll bag and tag this and then later on the laptop ended up in the trash truck where our stuff was put in and destroyed um they confiscated everything we had um our operation was led by someone from the mayor's office in a black town car. We don't know who she was, but she directed um, Captain Mason. Um, he was going to let us keep about half of our stuff, and she directed him. Um, she's, you know, that's not that's not enough. Take everything. So um, their tactic was to magically deem everything a fire hazard or a biohazard. And in fact, in the narrative of my arrest, um, it's filled with a lot of contradictory statements and outright lies. Um, they supposedly confiscated my tent for evidence. 
um, but it was also said to have been covered with feces, urine, and uncapped needles, which is absolutely not true. We had artwork, um, fake plants, furnishings. We kept it very, very clean. Um, I believe that the person who videotaped himself uh, kept the most valuable things, uh, including uh, my mother's wedding kimono, which was appraised at about $3,000, although it had sentimental value for me. And I know this because he provided the videotape on his phone to a friend of his who was also a friend of mine who provided it for me. So I don't think he knew that I was getting the, the um, video. Um, and they took things that were really important for us to survive, like warm jackets, boots, hands, um, just blankets, you know, things that we use to stay warm at night because it's very cold in San Francisco. Um, that's it. Back to you, Carlos. Thank you so much, Toro, um, for speaking on that. Um, I want to pitch it to someone else who has a unique perspective on this. Um, Felony, as a, as a service provider, could you speak a little bit about um, what you've seen in terms of um, your clients having their property stolen? Sure. Thank you, Carlos. And uh, you know, one of the other things that a lot of the I, I go out and I uh, um, don't just do outreach to case manage on the street, and I'm connecting people with treatment for HIV, Hep C. Um, syphilis, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and a lot of times when people are losing their IDs, that's causing problems. When they're losing their medication for HIV or Hep C meds, that's that they're having an interruption of their treatment. Especially, and you know, folks uh, to get them motivated to do that because they have different priorities. I have to get them remotivated if I can find them. Um, and then you, if I, we have people that are on Suboxone, and if that Suboxone gets lost or taken then they're going to have to access um, street drugs again and put them in that precarious situation. And if people are losing naloxone or putting people at risk of overdose death, and you know all that is just creating a whole lot of health disparities that a lot of people are trying to work to try and better themselves and it takes a lot of effort, a lot of motivation. And the second something like that gets lost, any kind of medication, any kind of documentation, it's just an uphill struggle and battle for everybody that's out there and their motivation goes away. And sometimes they won't reconnect to services uh, when it comes to their health because that's no longer the top priority. And so it becomes a really difficult thing to manage and it's hard to find people. I don't know where they're going. Um, I understand they're saying they're offering services, but I, I repeatedly tell the people that I go out to let folks know if they're going to uh, do a resolution, let them know that I'm working with you and I give extra business cards. So that way, whoever's you know working with them on this resolution, they can contact me and I've yet to be called ever. And uh, you know, it's just this disruption in things that are people, the things people are trying to do to take care of their health is really, really impactful. And it's just, it makes it hard for them, makes it hard for me because I'm chasing around, I'm doing the same work over and over just like they are. And you know, it's costing a lot of money and time and you know, we could be so much more effective uh, if people's stuff wouldn't get taken like this. Thank you so much um, for providing that perspective. Um, just wanna have one more, um, we have a video here now, this is um, going to talk about a lot of the same things that Felony and Tor were talking about. This is Gentleman Lamont, who I met at a, at a HSOC operation back in March, I believe, on um, 
Hyde and Larkin, but Larkin Hyde. Um, and he had his belongings taken by DPW at a resolution um, and was not offered any services. And I'm allowing him to talk a little bit about what he lost. Yeah, we took my stuff, all my clothes, phone, money, and we are not going to replace it, so I don't know where to go now. I don't know where to go from there. Who took your stuff? Huh? Who took your stuff? BBW. BBW? And did they offer you any services? or No, services, no. And I, I just think that that video and that the interaction was really, really heartbreaking to me. Um, after he tells you what he's lost, he says, I don't know where to go from here. Um, and he was being literal. This man, what you can't see in the video is that he was in an electric wheelchair. Um, that was, He had no battery for his wheelchair. He had his money and his phone, his documents, his belongings, his tent taken. He couldn't even move his wheelchair because it's electric and the battery was dead. I, we had to find somewhere for him to plug it in and charge it a bit. Um, and this was at a resolution, right? The big one where there is outreach workers. And this was an, an elder disabled man. Um, and he did try to get into a hotel room. I connected him myself with Hawking and asked him if he was eligible for a hotel. Um, and he was told that they didn't have a hotel bed for him that day. <laughs> and so that's how he was left after this resolution. Um, it's heartbreaking stuff, right? What Felony and Toro said, what Lamont said. And what we want to do is, is look through the records and say, how can we quantify this, right? How can we like, they, how can we show what's being taken? Um, and what we've done is we looked at the bag and tag logs for the, the months in question, January and February, and we've counted every bag and tag they did. During those two months, they did 38 bag and tags. Um, and over the 37 days, there are about 87 operations. Um, but then we wanted a, a bit of further analysis. What we did is if you look down there, we looked at the address of where these bag and tags were picked up. And we cross-referenced it with the addresses of the HSEC operations on the corresponding day. And what we found um, which I wish I could say was shocking, was that there was not a single time where those two lined up. Not a single bag and tag that was logged was corresponding location and date with the ATRC operation. And furthermore, if you look past this monthly log, you can see like each bag and tag themselves. And a lot of them were not even DPW logs. They were SFPD logs um, picked up from police stations. Um, so what this tells us is that bag and tags during the 37 day period, at least, are not happening at ATRC operations. And what I know, and what Kelly knows, and what Toro knows, and Felony too, is that when we go to HSEC operations daily on a daily basis for the last, since I've been here for the last year, we don't see bag and tags happen, ever. And when you talk to people, when you talk to people on the street about bag and tags, they laugh at you. They don't see them happen, ever. So this isn't an issue of not enough resources. This isn't an issue of um, bad policy. They have bag and tag policy. They aren't being done. That's a problem. All right, so unfortunately I have to stop it off here, but if you're interested in listening to more, you can check it out on YouTube. We also have a link to this on uh, the site under the show notes at weeklyrev.org. So that'll be it for this week. We'll be off the next couple of weeks, but we'll have some other shows being played in the meantime. Please do check out mutinyradio.fm for other shows here at the station. And uh, yeah, I guess that's it. Also, if you're interested in listening to any of the music we played on the show, the, the those that playlist will also be included in the show notes for uh for today so again thanks so much for tuning in and we'll be back next week
Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Coming soon, the 6th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. Six venues. 24 shows, 7 days, 75 comics from all over the United States at amazing local venues. Asiento, Atlas Cafe, El Rio, Milk Bar, OMG, and The Bar on Dolores. Special headliner shows at El Rio Thursday night, 7 and 9 o'clock featuring Scott Capuro headliner amazing comedian also Andy Iwancio out of Seattle here for the 6th annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. All tickets are $10 except the headlining show which are 20 You can find all of the shows on Mutiny Radio's Eventbrite. Reserve them now. And don't miss out. 2021, the 6th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. Black Block, a novel about protest from Sanjuro. A sample. The walk from Union Square to the bar is a long way for a drink. So you want a few stopovers. You get warmed up at Lefty O'Doul's, an old-time tavern with memorabilia and a menu from another century. Then a Market Street dive to rub elbows with the hoi polloi. Next is a Folsom leather bar. The dark goth soundtrack is a refreshing change from the usual jukebox anthems, but you must avert your eyes lest you observe gentlefolk in flagrante. That means fucking. Tonight, none of these places are open unless looters are broken in. The city is shut down because of the riots. Thank you. Find me at sandrowrider.com and Black Block is on Amazon. Why not make a donation? 
Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> Thank you, that song is called Acid and Fapping. <laughs> 